Welcome to Public Cloud for Public Good, a podcast talking about cloud sustainability and how we can use public cloud services to make the world a better place. Welcome back to Public Cloud for Public Good. Today, I'm with Rhiannon Lawson, who is currently working with the Welsh Government as the Head of Standards for the Centre of Digital Public Services. And uh, I mean, I could say it in Welsh as well, what, Clathlan Glasnefu Sindis Digidol. That was really bad pronunciation. Apologies for any Welsh listeners. Um, But yeah, welcome, Rhiannon. Thank you. I'm impressed because you know what? I'm not sure I can pronounce it. I'm very sorry to say that uh, despite having a Welsh name, I am not Welsh. And so I I, I can't do it. (laughs) I'm surprised they don't put it in the job interviews, to be honest. (laughs) It's like, do you really want to work for us? It's like those those sort of questions where it's like the fishing to see if you, or like, oh, do you want you have to respond to a recruiter acting like you care? The, everyone at the Centre of Digital Public Services take it very seriously, and there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of competitive Welsh learning. Ah, no, that, that is that's good to see. I mean, it yeah. is all important. I mean, at the end of the day, you do forget sometimes. Like you're working for an organisation that primarily serves uh, Welsh citizens, um, and and in Wales, uh, we have public law that that all services should be provided both in in English and Welsh, and it, it extends even to uh, the British government departments as well. So HMRC, which covers the whole of the United Kingdom. Um, they have to do the same. So it's glad to see that people who are working for uh, that department are like, you know, what? I should learn this because it'll one get you close to your customers at least. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and it's and it really is important for for the Welsh government and for the Welsh public service in that uh, we have to. One of the things is to promote the Welsh language when it comes to anything in Wales, and we have that as part of our service standards. So if you're building digital services, you have to design them in two languages. Um, and that is a bit of a challenge for everybody, getting uh, bilingual service designers, bilingual user researchers, et cetera, to try and work on on those services to make them right for Welsh citizens. I mean, that's an interesting problem, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously, if you go to school in Wales, you learn Welsh. But, you know, are we then turning those people with those Welsh language skills into people who work in tech? Like, are we giving them the training and access? And that's the other thing is, you know, we don't have a lot of government departments with big presences in, in Wales. We have DVLA, uh, who are both down south uh, near Cardiff and Swansea. Um, but, you know, we don't have massive presences. And it's like, well, if you can't get into the industry, how do we end up filling the skills that we need as well? We're not even giving them the, the, the opportunity. Absolutely. It's super, super difficult. And uh, what I'm trying to do is get people with the right skills, not necessarily the right job titles, to upskill into into those kind of roles. And that's certainly what our capability team are doing, because the, it is really lacking mm. um, when it comes to those skill sets across across the Welsh public sector. And, and that's a key thing for these ideas of entry-level jobs, isn't it? Where you go and look at it and they're like, oh, we expect one to two years experience already. And it's like, oh, you know, at the end of the day, the things that we do in our job, we could teach them on the job with the experience, with the access to internal tools and, and a learning budget. It's the people's, you know, how they drive themselves, what they're interested in, and the prior skills, which could make and break them. And, and a lot of the times, that, that's what it is. You know, take a user researcher. If you take a teacher who's really empathetic, who's used to kind of dealing with, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> raucous crowds of people, I'm pretty sure they could handle that. I think that's an interesting thing, actually. I wonder whether there's a list of jobs that you could say, if you do this, you could probably retrain as X in in tech. Um, You know, if you're a comms person, you could probably become a content designer. If you're a journalist, you could become a content designer, a technical writer. Um, There's various other roles that would definitely sort of map across. 
and and certainly in Wales, it's a massive, massive opportunity because there's so limited. We're so limited when it comes to the skill set in Wales. It's so desperately needed. And so if you get a role like that in in Wales, it would be it. You're only going to go up, I think. And there's lots and lots of really fun challenges to deal with across the Welsh public sector. Well, let's talk about some of those challenges. I mean, you know, part of the premise and, and kind of maybe just explain a little bit of this for people who are listening for, for why I called the show the Public Cloud for Public Good was not just to focus on the cloud sustainability, but also on what how cloud services can make the world a better place. And, you know, when we look at the automation and digitization of public services and, and creating better access to people with accessibility needs using those services, you know, that is inevitably creating a public good. So what are those challenges that the Welsh government is tackling now where they are looking at cloud services to primarily do that? I think one of the biggest challenges in Wales is actually is, is that first step of uh, digital transformation. Um, so a lot of other um, governments around the world and certainly the UK government, um, and when I say the UK government, I mean England, England and, and then Wales is the devolved bit of it. So there are certain organisations across Wales that have are ahead with their digital transformation, but others that that really aren't and are very far behind. And that's partly to do with the way that the Welsh public sector is set up. But again, we've got that skill set problem and trying to work out where the changes need to be made. Um, a lot of the organisations in Wales are very small, and that means bringing in digital skills. Skills it's a, a thing you need to pay for when you might need an HR person or a, you know someone doing ops or whatever else. And so actually, that's a massive, massive challenge. And, that, and that's really interesting, isn't it? In the, in the sense that at certain scales of organisations, when you get down to agencies, when you get down to sort of these smaller uh, organisations, that. At the end of the day, when when and it's the same for even other organisations like charities, let's say um, that you can only afford to do what you do, whether that's deliver the service, maybe bring in grant writers or, or applications because that generates income. But the digital side costs a lot of money. I mean, we're looking at salaries. If you need to get someone any good, you need to get a team of those people. You're looking upwards of of anywhere from I don't know two hundred to five hundred grand a year just for salaries and you know, the other costs on top, such as national insurance. So, you know, I'd say cloud maybe doesn't solve that problem, especially if for some reason the architects or, or the consultants you're working with are recommending building something Kubernetes. But, you know, SaaS services are really the, the sort of thing. And I found that, especially towards the end of my career, um, work for government, that it was almost like there was a lot more acceptance to potentially use these SaaS services in terms of, you know, it's it hosted by somebody else. Data might be elsewhere, um, but it does a good job. I mean, Miro is a great example. We use it for internal collab- collaboration in a lot of government departments, but it'd be interesting to sort of see, okay, well, does Welsh government have to tackle this problem differently rather than giving everyone digital service standards to build their own thing? They have to more look at it as, okay, how can we definitely build on platforms and, and offer this out to everyone? So platforms is an interesting thing and something that I'm working on at the moment, but I, I really genuinely do think that... Wales needs to go about it in the same way that other other places have. We should be using cloud and SaaS. Um, it is about digital transformation. And I think the, the, the reason for that is actually that because there's, uh, they're so much smaller and the agencies are, are so much more limited, and this is very generally speaking, there are going to be organizations that have more money and more people and things. But because generally they're a lot smaller, I think those collaboration tools, those uh, things that make things easier to to do make services quicker and easier to build platforms where you can you know use the same 
set of tools to be able to do the same thing in lots of different places. And we're, you know, removing duplication, removing all the stuff that everyone worries about and that costs money. Duplication makes things more secure, hopefully deals with legacy, all that kind of stuff. But none of it is a, an overnight fix. Yeah, um, and it, it takes convincing of the right people that it's the right thing to do. It takes getting all the CTOs on board that everyone's going to have the same security principles in place, you know, and, and the, certainly the service standards. We're very, very early on in our service standard journey. For anyone who's not seen, the Welsh service standard is a set of 12 points, very similar to the UK or the Scottish um, service standards. But we only have those 12 points. We haven't got any how to meet that yet. And it's all about embedding the service standards, getting people to use them. Um, and getting people to understand how to use them. So we're very, very early on. And that in itself is tough. Oh, no, I, I imagine it is getting people to follow the same standards uh, within one organization, within one team even, is hard for the most best of times, never mind the whole of a country. And, and you know, the other thing I was thinking of just then is, is like, you know, if you're quite early on in this journey, like many organizations who are, who are starting to use cloud, uh, you know, you might be, have maybe a single proponent of, of why we should be doing this in your organizational area. And, you know, you've got to start winning hearts and minds to say that, you know, this is how we should be doing it. You know, I remember the early days of, of, of dealing with security and, and, and the idea of, of sort of where we can host things and, and all the hoops and, and loops you'd have to jump through just to kind of get risk registers signed off. Uh, where today, those same problems are just not seen in the same way because we've solved them. It, 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 potentially, you know, we've put rules in place at the center. We've We've put controls in place, which is the right thing to do. But yeah, winning those hearts and minds is always the, the hard part as well. It really is. And I think the, the the way to do that, and this is the case anywhere with anything where you're telling people to do things is not to tell them, but to bring them along with you on the journey. And hopefully what I'm aiming to do as the head of standards is, is get the Welsh public sector to build these things with us. And so any guidance that we're creating, we will get people to help. I worked with uh, the Rwandan government a while back and they asked me how we force people to to meet the standards and and things and and I said you don't most of the time you don't have to force them if if they've written it with you and if they can see the benefits then hopefully they'll do it and there's a bit of naivety in that and a bit of optimism but um yeah winning hearts and minds and bringing the people along with the journey and not doing things to them is the way to to yeah. to make it work I almost feel like that should be like some sort of tagline for the podcast is like, you know, I'm just trying to help people win hearts and minds, get people to think about sustainability. I'm not going to tear around and tell you what to do. And talking of standards and, and sustainability and, you know, how do we tackle the problems we need to tackle going forward in tech is, you know, the Welsh government, you, you recently published a, a information about a new contract going out of how do we, dis a discovery on how do we achieve net zero uh, for Wales and, you know, potentially that will be by putting standards in place for IT teams or uh, putting it as alongside that. So, you know, could you just talk more on that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Wales has a, a net zero aim by 2050, as many uh, countries do. Uh, we have a sort of pre-aim for 2030. Um, and every area of the Welsh government, or I think the Welsh, uh, the whole of Wales, not just the Welsh government, has a 
a bit of a task to do to get us there. So whether that is the construction industry or different bits of the public sector. And then we, as the digital side of things, have a contract between um, CDPS and Parago Wales and MSPARC. And uh, we're going to be carrying out discovery to establish how technology can be used to meet those net zero aims. We're focusing it on public services. So the majority of it will be how technology can make services better and make services more sustainable. I expect some of the outcomes will be that maybe not standards as such, unless there's some really clear international standards around certain technologies that are better than others. But it will certainly, they'll, I, I, I'm almost certain there'll be something that will be, if you're creating this kind of thing, by considering X, Y and Z, you'll be able to lower your emissions by this much. I don't want to preempt the discovery, of, of course, course. Um, yes. but uh, that's what I expect. I, I do expect that's what some of our support will end up being is guidance around how to meet those aims while also meeting user needs and meeting business needs. And that's a real balance um, and something that actually I think needs to be kept in mind that there are lots of things that we can do for sustainability. One of the things is that uh, can't remember which organization it was, but they said, uh, turn off all your cameras when you're on video calls and that will save X amount of emissions. Of course, there is a balance to be had here when it comes to uh, probably mental health and productivity, <laughs> because can you imagine like I, so CDPS <laughs> is a completely digitally native organization. We have no offices, uh, which in itself is a, a sustainable uh, yep, sustainability definitely. thing. We have no offices. I have met the senior leadership team, but I've met none of my other colleagues. And if I started this job and never saw anyone's face, I think it, it would drive me insane. So I think there are definitely, there is, there's things you need to be sensible about and there's a, a balance to be had. But um, of course you can make those suggestions. Like if you've got a meeting that you truly don't need to be on a video for, for one reason or another, we'll turn off your camera. Um, so it's some of these sorts of things uh, that are simple, quick fixes, and then I'm sure there'll be some big, big bang uh, outcomes as well. Yeah, and, and that's the whole point of, you know, trying to start this conversation with sustainability and tech for me is, is about how do we tackle these problems at scale? You know, we can say, sort this at the source with the cloud provider itself, with the organization, rather than the individual actions. It, it, it sort of shows you kind of the scale. I mean, one of the things I talk about in, in, in a couple of my talks is, is, you know, just thinking about Netflix, you know, okay, cool. It never used to exist 10, 15 years ago. It, it now services, you know, so many streams around the world, which I don't know, it's probably better than people driving to Blockbuster every weekend to rent a video uh, when it comes to gas emissions. But that's still 150 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year, just through the production of, of, of all of those services and the IT that goes into it. And, you know, at the end of the day, how do we sit there and go, okay, how can you these because for me it's, it's this conversation right now getting people to say how can you as a corporation say you're already on your way to meet net 50 and you've pledged to do this but over the last three four years since we've all been measuring this your emissions have only gone up when is this actually happening because just doing the reports just just making the marketing statements isn't actually turning into to any difference now um you know i think from from my point of view if i was to say anything around the digital standards and it highlights a little bit of an, of an interesting concept, I guess, especially when it comes to the cloud providers, is that you should always be measuring cost for when you build a digital service. It, it's one of the things in, in, in the digital service standards for government is, is, is actually, you know, putting your service on um, a thing like a service definition page on gov.uk. And it, it has all those cost per transaction, it has all these other things. So that's an easy expectation. And we always say, yes, do that. But 
now we should start asking people to measure the CO2 emissions. Um, because the only way that we can ever see if we are making progress, the only way we see we go down, is if we can measure the changes there. And it's the first step towards impact any change. So I'm sure there'll be stuff around that when it comes to No, out. I agree. I completely agree. And I think the thing is, is that, yes, we need to do it at scale. But actually, we need to make it doable for people. So what is it? What are the small things that they can do? And then what are the things that they can consider? It's not it's not going to be the same in every single contract or the same with every single project. Um, but, you know, as long as the you're creating a contract and considering your organization's sustainability goals, if you're making sure that you're adding in some kind of project objective that that tries to meet the organized sustainability goals, and then, like you said, start to measure it and even if you can't say we're definitely coming down as an organization, but you can say our emissions aren't as high as if we hadn't done this, I think that's at least doing something. Mm, definitely. You know, that idea for, for an individual that it's manageable, that it, it is sustainable in itself. The actions to tackle this are sustainable um, is, is really important. You know, that's again, one of the frustrations for me is like being told to recycle all of our plastics. And it's like, well, why don't we just stop supermarkets from giving me so much plastic in the first place? Do I really need this triple wrapped, you know, compared to what it was several years ago? I mean, bananas in bags is always a bane of mine. They come with skin. I mean. <laughs> we'll get back to our interview soon, but I really want to highlight that it's not all doom and gloom in the world. So now is the part of the show where we shine a spotlight on companies, charities, and organizations that are contributing to making the world a better place. Supporting ethical businesses and charities that are doing good in the world is the easy way for all of us to also contribute when we're able to. And I love this week's one. It is Who Gives a Crap? A toilet paper company that has donated over £5.3 million to charitable causes. Their mission is to donate 50% of their profits to ensure that everyone has access to clean water and a toilet within our lifetime. And they use you wiping your ass to help get there. I really love their philosophy. It is, we succeed when communities take the lead. And it's not just a fun rhyme. Creating the infrastructure for proper toilets can look a lot different depending on the geography, climate, culture, and history. That's why they choose to partner with incredible, high-impact organizations that take innovative, localized approaches to tackling the sanitation crisis. I guess moving on then to, to sort of, you know, you and the, and the work that you've done previously, you, you were at, at CDDO, which is the uh, Chief Digital uh, and Data Officer office within the UK government uh, and you've done loads of stuff. You, you were the winner of the Future Stars of Tech 2020 Public Sector Award and now you're currently shortlisted for uh, the Digital Leaders 100. So, I mean, talking about yourself and your career journey, what would you want to highlight and kind of share with others? Yeah, so so I I think I've had quite an interesting career journey because I, I only started in tech about five years ago and I've been in the public sector for 15-ish um, so I was in policy in various places and then fell into a tech role uh, when I, I got a cybersecurity role in uh, TFL and then moved to DDS and spent quite a long time there in the in the policy team and leading that team. And I really love being in tech. I, I think, I mean, you public cloud for public good. Um, <laughs> I really do genuinely believe that technology and digital does a lot of good for people and as cliche as it is, one of the reasons that I'm in the public sector is because I want to do good and help people in some way. And I think digital transformation is one of those big things. I was leading on the cloud and legacy strategy for government for a long time, which perhaps doesn't sound sexy or exciting, but was a really interesting piece of work um, and was something that, uh, yeah, I feel like I achieved a lot. 
Um, and I also, as I mentioned earlier, worked with uh, the Rwandan government. Um, and I think that was probably one of my biggest highlights. Going, I was, I was lucky enough to go out to Rwanda just before lockdown. Um, it was like two weeks, I think, before lockdown. Wow. So I just Good got job. that in there <laughs> and spent a bit of time with them, helping uh, them to create their own cloud strategy and a version of the tech code of practice that was right for them. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting experience. And I've learned a lot through COVID as well. At the beginning of COVID, I had uh, five teams, I think, with about 42 people and trying to make sure that everyone was happy and healthy and still managing to do their jobs um, was a was certainly a, a leadership and uh, management challenge, but one that I think I did quite well. well. Well, I definitely think you did well with. But one of the things you recently talked about on on your podcast, The Unfair Sex, which, you know, promote it, um, it which is a really great podcast. I, I listen to it every week, every two weeks, it, is, is talking about, you know, that, that view of, of women in tech and sort of, you know, almost the expectation that you need to be empathetic and, and for want of a better term, motherly and, and look after your team. And, and almost that's like an expectation uh, without recognition. And, and when you are doing it, even you have this double-edged sword of being criticised afterwards. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's um the thing is so I I as I, as I said in my podcast I don't think that being motherly in in inverted commas or um you know emotional or caring towards your team is a bad thing in any way and I think that's one of my sort of top skills is is being a very supportive person and I'm proud of that. However, um as you say when it came to lockdown I organized all sorts of events and things for my team to just try and lighten things up a little bit and I know that the majority of them really appreciated it but it got to my 360 feedback at the end of the year and I got some feedback from somebody that said that optically it didn't look great that I'd done this stuff because having a, a senior civil servant who's organizing gigs and designing advent calendars and researching dinosaurs wasn't uh wasn't a good thing and I should have I should have delegated that to my team and it's just, I just think if I hadn't done it, I would have been criticized for being too harsh. Um, and it's this, as you said, a bit of a double-edged sword where we have to be firm and strong and, you know, all the typical leadership skills, but we won't be liked. Uh, but if we are too nice and caring, then we're seen not to be competent. So it's a, it's a tough balance, but I, I liked, I, I just do me. <laughs> I mean, definitely do you. And, and, and for, for the majority of these things, you know, they're always these complaints or, or these comments. They're trying to hide something in themselves, probably. So I'm pretty sure his real feedback was, well, Rihanna was able to do this while achieving her job and her outcomes, and I wasn't able to. So uh, that's bad. And yeah, I mean, I did the same. We played a lot of Among Us uh, on, on some Friday team meetings. And yeah, we did try and uh, mix all up a little bit post-COVID. Um, to get the team back together and, and see each other, say, post-COVID, we're living in an endemic world nowadays, but never mind. So, I mean, I mentioned a couple of the awards that, that you've sort of been nominated for and shortlisted for, and we talked about this before the podcast, but, you know, one of the things, I guess, sometimes is, is if you are working in tech is that recognition and, and, and receiving it. And, and for me, one of the reasons why I've made the move not out of the public sector per se, I still work with public sector organisations, but working for a government department myself was that lack of recognition um and I'll, I'll say that because it, it did contribute to burnout and it was sort of one of those things where it's like i know i'm working in the public sector i wasn't here for the money like you know what i do get paid is 
is for what I was doing at the time, a really great salary for what it is, but it's not comparable to other similar roles in tech. And I accepted that. But the lack of recognition, the lack of sort of just the thanks afterwards, because that's all this sometimes is. It's just, you know, your leader going, do you know what? I think you did such a great job. Thank you. And do you know what I've done? I've gone and done X, Y, Z, whether it's a nomination for an internal award, an external award. And, you know, what, what could people do to try and think about that when it comes to well-being and, and looking after your team? I mean, just saying thank you, as you said, I think just sometimes that is enough because you will always get criticised if you do something wrong. Someone will tell you if it's not right. Um, so a lot of the time you just need someone to say thank you. And and it doesn't need to be a senior leader, just anyone around you or someone just to drop you a line and copy in your manager and say, you've done a really great job. But one of the other things I think is nominating people for things. Go and hunt out those Women in Tech Awards or the whatever other, you know, there's so many awards that you can nominate people for. And just getting a nomination is great. And often they don't want any more than 150 words from you or something. It doesn't take long. And I think that's the thing. A lot of these things people think, oh, it's just going to take me forever. And it doesn't. And just getting that email that says you've been nominated for this thing is just such a lovely boost, even if you don't get shortlisted or, or win. It's just such a nice thing. So yeah, I was. I think that's the thing that I would uh, definitely recommend for people to do. But just say thank you. I think yeah, it definitely could see like you know if I'd, I'd woken up to you know an inbox when it's you know mid pandemic and you're dealing with so many things and 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 you, you turn your laptop on for the first meeting of the day and there was that there. I think you know you can see how that can can change someone's day or week and 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 it's just sort of it, it's regardless of like you say the small act of thanks it shows the type of person that you are and you know especially when it comes to director roles and you are getting into leadership positions that you know as much as you can do the platitudes at a wider scale the all hands and and talk about maybe well-being or anything else and and say this is important to us like the small actions are the ones that people notice and remember as individuals and, and you can yeah definitely definitely and if them. you're a senior leader i think taking the time out to speak to an individual is really nice and don't speak to their manager just you only need to book five minutes in with them just to say, that was, that was really great, actually. Um, I really appreciated it. I don't think people realise or remember when they were more junior mm. how much of a difference that sort of thing makes. It's interesting talking about when they were junior because obviously attitudes to leadership and how the world works and how things should work have changed. Like Clearly, uh, it has changed. Otherwise, you know, probably quite frankly, me and you wouldn't have been in the same positions in government as, as we were this decade compared to the 80s or 90s. I mean you know, being gay was criminalized for a long time. And even then afterwards, it was seen as a security risk for a very long time in government. So, you know, I, I'm definitely acknowledge that in some ways that I'm, I'm very lucky that I was able to do the things that I can do today. But yeah, I remember seeing something very recently online and, and don't touch on this too much, but yeah, they were just talking about how they got feedback uh, from a manager that started working that they were too, what's the word, like friendly with senior management. They should have been like, almost that deference they should have been shown more deference and less friendliness and like you know with with someone who's more senior than with them and i'm just like please it, oh my gosh like, like please never do like that extreme oh. respect right that you respect them so much that you don't speak to them like <laughs> god i can't i'd hate it if um if anyone treated me like that when i was a dd in, in yeah. government um and a few people did say to me they were like oh you know can you still come out for drinks with us and you can we still do these things together? And I was like, yeah. I'm still the same person. You don't have to stop just because I'm now, again, like in bunny ears, like a, a, 
a senior leader. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's there's a there's a funny harsh line in the civil service where you just jump this to senior civil service, and you know that can be seen as as a change. And yeah, I mean, I mean the biggest problem for me is is regardless of all these things, is the people who want it to be like this, who have got into these positions, whether they are men or most likely men, but, you know, and want to be called Mr. I mean, I remember one of my first senior civil servants was was harking back to the days when everyone used to call him Mr. Whatever, fuckface. Um, and <laughs> like he said, oh, oh, I went to this like regional office recently and they had my name on like this little slatted board, you know, where you can put the little, like almost like an old movie feeder, like welcome Mr. Because he was like an SES. And I'm just like, Wow, the things, it's not like, you know, oh, last week I delivered this amazing thing and changed lives and, and saved X amount of money. That's what you're like coming to work for, this sort of. <laughs> it's just a bit of a power trip, isn't it? That's what definitely, it is. Definitely. Um, so I, I talked a little bit around me leaving government and, and, and start my own thing and consultancy and, and, and this podcast. Uh, you recently left and did a similar thing. So how's that journey been? How are you enjoying it so far? Yeah, it's uh, it was a big scary jump, and uh, you and I discussed it a little bit before I did it. I've gone from being a full time civil servant to going to Wales as a contractor, and so I'm doing quite a similar role. Obviously, there's a little bit less certainty. You have your set contract length, and you know at the end of that, I might not have a contract anymore, and that's that is frightening. And I'm sure other contractors are just very used to that, and it's fine. But so far, I have I have enjoyed it. I haven't felt like an outsider. I think that that worried me a little bit that I would feel I would be treated like I wasn't one of them, you know, mm. one of the team. Um, <laughs> and the majority of the time, it's absolutely fine. And you know, you you've been brought in for your skill sets, and they need you for a reason. And so they do tend to listen. Um, and I think uh, that's the. The thing you need to be re- you need to remember you've been brought in because they couldn't find anyone permanent to do this role but yeah the the imposter syndrome definitely kicked in for a bit worrying about that but it's it is interesting but i'm only i'm only three months into yeah. contracting all new i mean you know you make a really great point is, is you know there are purpose for contract roles and i'm not saying they should replace permanent civil servants we should have all of the schemes to recruit train because at the end of the day, this isn't something that you just jump into either. And not everyone can do contracting. Like you said, you know, if you've got things that you need to pay for, like kids, I mean, you've got a mortgage, you've got a house, and you're working week to week with a contract uh, or whatever it might be, you know, that doesn't suit everyone's lifestyle. So not everyone ends up in this position. And, you know, thinking back to, you know, me as a, somewhere a background I came from, I'm so thankful for those schemes that got me into the permanent civil service. And I'd definitely still be there if, if, if the world had aligned slightly differently. But yeah, that that main thing I, I love to pick up on, on what you said is you're brought in as an expert and are oftentimes listened to more closely. Uh, I mean, imagine you found this maybe as even as a, well, yeah. As a, as a civil I, I servant, <laughs> I actually found this very frustrating. So uh, there would be times as a civil servant where I had provided my expert opinion for as or experienced opinion or researched view. Um, and then uh, someone would say, oh, can we check it with industry or can we check it with an industry expert? And then the thing I'd written would go out to a contractor or to industry or to whoever mm. else. And then suddenly it would be sort of approved and agreed yeah. with. And that was frustrating as a civil servant. Oh, definitely. Especially when you look at the cost difference of those sort of exercises. You know, I did a very similar, similar thing just before I left uh, as, as as how we met me and Rihanna worked on uh, the one good value agreement. And um, all the elements that come into sort of, you know, this, this centralized 
uh, view of cloud for the UK government. Um, and one of the things I looked at was recruitment and skills challenges and issues along those lines. And you know, me and, and another colleague worked along and we came up with this presentation, this report and, and these recommendations. And surprisingly, though, not all the recommendations were, were actually just recruitment or actually just whatever else. Some of them stepped back quite a lot. And when I sent this to uh, the person I went to in CDDO and, and it's too much details, like they were like, oh, wow, this is exactly what we've got from like Deloitte or over the contract. And I'm like, and hell, how much money did we probably spend and time getting that same position when, you know, there's a couple of experts throughout government, there's people that you can speak to to validate these things, and you can get this yourself if you just asked or just even, yeah, listened in the first place. It's actually something that's really worth remembering for people who don't know much about the civil service, is that a lot of people go into the civil service because they, like I said, because they want to do something good. They might have worked in industry a long time and are like, I don't want to make money for someone else now. I want to go and do something for the public. And so they are experts coming in. But as soon as they're inside, they're not treated as experts anymore. Or that can happen. I'm not saying that happens everywhere. Um, and I think um, there is a bit of a view in some places that civil servants are, you know, career civil servants who've been there forever. And maybe they they don't have the expertise that, uh, yeah, they don't have the expertise that someone from outside might have. And nine times out of 10, that's nonsense. And uh, it's a real shame. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely complete nonsense. I mean, the biggest experts of public services, you know, how we should be delivering all these things are the people who've already worked in government and delivered these things, you know, turning paper-based processes. I mean, I'm not going to recommend this particularly. I remember my very, very early days of working at DWP when a digital service was about turning a PDF form into an online web form and printing it on the back end uh, so we didn't have to send it in. And it's like, you know, we've moved a long way from there, but we had to speak to those people who were already working with those forms who'd come up with them and they are the experts. So thank you so much for, for sort of coming on and, and, and joining me. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. The final two parts of the interview, as you know, are our charity segment. So for as thank you for coming on. Uh, we'll be donating £500 to a charity of your choice. So who have you chosen and, and why? So I have chosen Freedom for Girls, which is a uh, period poverty charity so um, it's something that um, we're mentioning on our podcast that's going out next week about periods so a huge percentage of girls across the UK uh, miss school every every year because I think it's I think it was 134,000 girls a year miss school because of period poverty so this charity supports people um, to get the uh, period products that they require. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these harsh things, isn't it, in, in, in terms of, of, of being a woman, is that not only do you have to deal with a period every month, you have to deal with the cost of, of, of having one. You have to deal with the access to these things. And and for the unfortunate number of children, in particular in the UK at the moment, you know, already in poverty, I imagine the parents are going without. It's one of these things that's hard to deal with at the best of times when, when a teenager is dealing with those things. But yeah, without schools, without charities who are stepping in to provide these things, that be a lot less available. And I think that's one of the things, you know, in all of the rigmarole, I really appreciate like some stuff like the Scottish government, you know, actually now provide this in schools as part of just the way they do things. And, you know, I think all the vague things that really frustrates me a few years back about how Brexit could deliver reduced VAT on women's health products because of whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, it didn't really, it, it was just a marked in line, wasn't it really? But, yeah. I mean, so the, and, and uh, it's a bit of a tangential thing, but the this kind of charity actually eventually could aid 
in bringing girls into various different industries because the disparity between girls who experience period poverty girls that don't and then boys is massive when it comes to education so the ed- they miss such a huge number of days every year um, that their education goes backwards or stands still and so how can we get girls into these into certain fields when they're being pushed backwards in their careers uh, in their education so um, this is a really really important thing mm. and you know it is something that I definitely resonate with, you know, looking back to my childhood and, and how I grew up and, and people forget is like, you know, you're not thinking about your future and your university application if the problem you have is putting food on the table for your family or dealing with issues like, I mean, I, I was speaking with people is like, you know, the idea of a gas meter and putting electricity on a card and, and it going out in emergencies and, and, and whatever else is like, you know, the amount of times I woke up to get ready for school and there was not even any gas or electricity in the house and it's like, if I just hadn't looked on the path that I did and, and, and get my career, then, you know, how could I have ever thought about rolling tech? Because I'd be worried about getting a job at Tesco or Aldi to pay the bills and not improve Completely my skills or not go into university. So definitely solving these problems at the source is, is going to help people in the future. So thank you for that. And the final thing then for all of our listeners who are developers and senior leaders in tech, uh, what's your tip that you'd give them the one thing that would help them live or work more sustainably? So I'm going to go with working and and maybe this is an obvious one, but it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine, I think, when it comes to digital transformation and, and services is retire your stuff. So if you've got a system that doesn't look like it's working or you've got something that's obviously legacy, don't try and fix it if it doesn't look fixable. Just retire it. And that's going to make you automatically more sustainable. People have got all, there's lots of companies and organizations that have got these old systems just sat there doing nothing and if you just take a bit of time to audit your estate and just shut down the stuff that you're not using going to become more sustainable automatically definitely and it doesn't even just stop at services i mean talking about retiring your stuff any sort of documentation research use whatever else as long as you don't have to keep it for regulatory regulatory purposes as long as you don't have to you know keep these things we really should be getting rid of them and one of the things i've always kind of thought about and i wish if I was ever in a position where I was, I was, I was establishing a, a wide or working at a large enterprise organization, we need more librarians in tech to look at our data repositories for all of our content and manage it properly, not just leave it to rot or, or, or get lost or ignored and, and cost money to store. And, and sure Microsoft love all the licensing fees for SharePoint and everything else. So thank you so much, Rihanna. I, I really enjoyed this and, and I'm, I'm glad I can get someone in uh, all well vaguely into the from the uk government pu- public sector so uh thank you for joining me if there was what if there was a uh, place people could find you uh links or anything else uh, what would you want to share so you can find me on linkedin uh so i'm at underscore rhiannon lawson um i'm also on instagram but that's more of a personal one but you're welcome to follow me nanon lawson on instagram and uh if you Google me, I'm uh, there's a lot of me on the internet, it turns out. Uh, please do also follow The Unfairer Sex on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us on Spotify. Yes, I definitely recommend the podcast. And, and if you are interested, and we didn't talk about this in the podcast, but Rhiannon does an amazing thing every Wednesday called Dino Wednesdays. So you'll get all the updates from her Instagram if you are following there. Have a lovely rest of the week. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if there's one thing that you could do for me is go and listen to Rhiannon's podcast, The Unfairer Sex. 
Regardless of whether you've dealt with any of this yourself as a woman or if you are a man, I think it is a really great insight into the world of how the other half live. Definitely from my perspective, you know, some of the stuff that is on there, while it is deep and heavy, and it is something that I think we all need to listen to and see and hear about because it's so easy to dismiss the impacts of sexism especially within the tech world and and say even that it doesn't exist when clearly day in day out there's a whole half of our society half of our world who have to deal with these things and thank you for Rhiannon and her co-hosts for producing it thanks so much for listening this podcast was brought to you by Imbue a cloud sustainability consultancy there's one final thing from me I would love it if you could do one thing this week to make the world a brighter place. And if you do want to share it with us, then please get in touch with us on social media or leave it alongside your review as a comment. 